You're listening to the Winnebus.net Podcast Network. Fantastic Fest is over, although we'll still probably be posting stuff from it for the next few weeks because there's a lot. But in terms of other movies that we can review and talk about with you, we've got our Digital Noise home release stuff. And we've got some interesting stuff to talk about this week. Joining me is John. Hello, John. Hello. How was your uh, two weeks? It's been nutty, but I'm here. I think that's accurate for a lot of people around this time of j- year. You know, shit just kind of happens, and you're, then you have to kind of just deal with it. And Things you know. start slipping wildly out of control all the way up until the 1st of January when everybody decides at the same time, I'm going to take control again. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> and Just anticipating the next thing. But uh, the next thing for you guys to hear are indeed all these reviews. Just a quick house cleaning. Please click on those Amazon links on the page themselves with the images of the movies that we're talking about. Because if you do and you buy a title through one of those links, we get a nice little kickback. But in fact, if you buy anything starting from one of our Amazon links, we get a nice little kickback. So you know what? Take that Amazon link off of your, your browser bar that's already there and replace it with one that starts from one of our links. And that way, every time you buy from Amazon, we get some money. It works out good for, for us. doesn't change anything for you whatsoever. Uh, yeah, it's all good. Do that. Also, become a subscriber. Number one way you can help. New stuff coming up very shortly. We are going to be working on some Halloween commentaries. Uh, still trying to decide what movies to do. I'm kind of leaning towards The Sixth Sense right now. Uh, and we know I keep kind of surprised we never did one for The Sixth Sense. Seems like yeah. a good Halloween movie to to do a commentary track for. I always get super creeped out, though, regardless. Even sitting around drinking and joking, I'm sure when it gets to that part where the kid goes, uh, do you want to see where my dad keeps his gun? I just See, I just got chills up my spine just saying it out loud. It's been a long time since I've seen that movie. Like a, like a long time. Probably since it first came. I don't think I've seen it since... It originally came out on DVD. I, I was a big fan. I like it. I just It's just one of those that I have... It's been a very, very long time. It's never got back around to, got to back revisiting. To well, maybe uh, this October is the time. I see a lot of people out there are picking their hol- their October... The 31 Days of Horror. Like, I'm going to watch 31 horror movies. I know this isn't like... It's not on our list. You throw the link up and let people buy Sixth Sense and the movie I'm about to mention. But a couple of years ago, I didn't grow up with this movie at all. And you and I have talked a little bit about horror movies like this before. I didn't grow up with this movie at all. I did not grow up with Pumpkinhead. Mm-hmm. I was aware of it, but it was not one that I watched. I didn't watch it until just two or three years ago. It was on Netflix, and I watched it. And I really liked it, but I wasn't, like, crazy over the moon about it. I was just like, that was pretty good. Then last year, I watched it during October, and I was like, I actually really like this movie. And I think now it's part of my regular... In your rotation? Yeah, it's part of my regular October Halloween movie diet is Pumpkinhead. So, I'll admit, I was well aware of it since I was a kid, because I used to subscribe to Fangoria Magazine. Yeah. And I was like, ooh, i got to see that. Never saw it. I saw it for the first time like two months ago. Oh. Yeah. I never yeah. had seen it. It was, yeah, it's a lot of fun. But also, the only film ever directed by Stan Winston. Mm-hmm. The special effects, like, maestro. Yeah. And there's a lot of really cool shots, like the weird... Like jutting grave that they dig the kid out of to turn him into pumpkin head, like all that stuff. There's, there's lots of cool uh, visuals in that movie. But uh, yeah, when I watched it a second time, it really cemented itself as like, as like a Halloween classic. I'm actually excited. There's another film like that that I've always been aware of and never seen, and partially because it was just not available. But they just sent it to me on Blu-ray. It's Rawhead Rex. Oh, always man. wanted to see it, and I'm so. When excited. I was a kid, I was. I, I was scared of everything. Like, I was so anti-horror movie. Everything scared me. And my friend Stephen Corrington was, like, a huge horror nerd. Mm-hmm. And I was he put on Rawhead Rex, and I was just like, oh, I don't want to watch this. I'm going to have nightmares. Was not scared at all. <laughs> <laughs> and I would have been. Like, I was such a chicken. So my memory of Rawhead Rex, I've never watched it as an adult because it, I found it so laughably unscary when I was a kid. I don't know that it would uh, have any effect on me now. Yeah, we were we're doing a, uh, our horror show, Deliberation of the Doom. Our next assignment is Clive Barker movies, which mm-hmm. I'm like, great. There'll be three good movies out yeah. of the whole stack. But um, people are telling me, no, no, you maybe you haven't seen Lord of Illusions for a long time. It's good. I'm like, is it? 
Is it? Lord of Illusions will trick you like that. Because, yeah. like, your memory will be like, oh, yeah, it's kind of weird, and there's, like, a cult at the end, and it's kind of creepy. But then when you're watching the movie, you're sort of like, no, it's not... Yeah. Not really moving. Like, it's not... It's not a not a great movie. But they're like digging up the Ashikur, digging up these totally obscure ones, and I'm like, oh guys, stop looking for more. Jesus <laughs> Christ, do we want to watch Books of Blood? Do we? I, apparently, we're going to have to. But Rawhead Rex being part of that lineup. Yeah. Like, okay, fair enough. All right. Well, happy not, Halloween, everybody. Yeah, happy <laughs> Halloween. We actually only have one horror movie to talk about on this week's show, but um, it's classic. Hero starring Sam Elliott. <laughs> well, it's hard. That's probably seems like a hard movie if you're getting into your 70s, you know. Yeah. You're like, oh, oncoming death. But uh, we are going to start off by talking about another film about being sick. But this one is easily my pick of the week and one of my picks of the whole year, period. Um, I think this movie, The Big Sick, is not just one of my top five of the whole year. It's really, I think, one of the top five romantic comedies just flat out ever made. Ever made. That's yeah. a tall order. I, I know. but I, I And I need to revisit it again. I, I've been waiting. I just saw it not that long ago, and I've been waiting to revisit it again with my wife who wants to see it again. I'm kind of like, see, does it have the same punch if I see it again? I don't know. Was this your first or second time seeing this it? This was my first time to see it after, you know, sometimes... An, uh, Sometimes a movie can be overhyped. Sure. Um, and when it's when it's a romantic comedy like this, I think it's especially uh, I don't want to say dangerous. What words am I looking for here? Well, comedy uh, is such a delicate thing. Yeah, you know, and like it, the they always what is it? They say surprise is the key of comedy, and if you're expecting to be laughing really hard, it's going to reduce your chances. My expectations for this were so high that um, I thought it was that even the fact that I thought it was very good makes it seem like I was kind of disappointed. Right, and I think I was kind of disappointed because I really wanted it to hold the same amount of emotional punch that it did for other people mm. uh, that it didn't necessarily for me. Although I do think the writing, the acting, the directing, I think everything about it is top notch. My- so everything that everything I'm saying is all based entirely on my expectations and not on objective criticism. Fair. But you still enjoyed it regardless. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you didn't walk out of it like, man, what are those people talking about? This movie's not very good. No, it's one of those movies that's, that it, it, it is great. And I did let my expectations get too high. Ah, fair it, it, it can be both. It can In be. this case, it was. And this is definitely kind of the the second shot across the bow for a major shot across the bow for, to, of Take Notice of Kumail Nanjani, who not only has been knocking it out of the park on Silicon Valley, one of my favorite characters on that show for a while. But now with this, like firmly cementing himself as writer, marquee star. Uh, now one wonders, because this is based pretty closely on his real life experience with his wife, Emily Gardner. Like, so do you have to have other real life things that happen to you to make a good movie? Let's hope not. <laughs> but yeah. this is obviously a deeply personal story. And yes, there are some changes. Uh, not the least of which, although Kumail's playing himself, uh, actress Zoe Kazan, who I have such an art school film boy crush on, is uh, playing his wife. Here, when it's, you know, the meet cute of them meeting, uh, really sort of bonding, him kind of, them having problems based on his culture and his family's expectations, and then finding himself in the odd position of being still listed essentially as her significant other, so that when she falls into a odd uh, health-related coma. He's the one who gets called in. And he ends up forming a very strange relationship with both of her her parents, played by Holly Hunter and Ray Romano. And the whole experience kind of cements for him how important all, you know, she really was to him. And I found this heartwarming, and I cried, and I laughed. I just had a great time. And I would like to point out once again, Ray Romano, boy, talk about your, like, hard to pick coming out of the rear guy and turning into a really fascinating uh, uh, dramatic actor lately. Appearing in lots of stuff and supporting roles and just every time you're like, wow, that guy's great. Uh, He's great in this. Holly Hunter's great in this as well. The kind of like, uh, you know, I'm not an Oscar predictor, but the kind of of parts that you could easily see getting like a Best Supporting Actor, Best Supporting Actress nominations. Most Um, certainly. And, and honestly, I could see him. I could see uh, Nanjani getting a, a screenplay 
uh, nomination. Not to not, again, I'm not a I'm not a guy that sits back and is like, no. this award season, the big sick is clearly a pick for no. No, no I'm, I'm not, not an Oscar whisperer either. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's the kind of the kind of roles that you can see because they are sort of like they they are so good in such an accessible way that it's the sort of thing that the Academy typically will like give a nod to. Yeah. Um, and, and honestly the script is the thing that more than anything, it's so shined so hard that you're like this deserve everything's good in this, but the script is so tightly written. It deserves some sort of special, you know, point right at it written by him and his wife. There's something about it too. As far as finding a wider audience, I think it's important uh, in modern America for there to be, uh, representations of of Muslims uh, in media, where they're just regular people, mm-hmm. um, and that the him being a Muslim is part of the plot, but it's accessible in the same way that being a lapsed Catholic would be part of the plot, right. which is that his family is still very devout, and he is honestly not, and has to deal with like, well, my parents think I am, and I kind of sort of keep up the illusion, but at some point. I'm going to be middle-aged, and how much longer do I have to keep up this this appearance? Uh, and I think that's something people can relate to no matter what religion you are. But, but again, the simple, like, you know, the family cutting up together, sitting around on the table together, uh, you know, very relaxed. Um, and, they, you know, they do make uh, – there is the really great 9-11 joke that everybody uh, talks about from the film. But, uh, right, right. but even apart from that, I think just – Seeing, I think it's important for Middle America for for Joe Walmart to see movies in which Muslim people are just people. Yeah, so I feel like this and uh, what's the Netflix TV show um, with another very big, uh, but I believe Pakistani actor. Uh, it was a comedy. They're on the second season. It's like a big hit. I'm blanking the name of, but it's also very normalizing. It's very like, look, these are just regular people. Yes, yeah. their culture's a little bit different, but oh, when Ma- you po- are you talking about Master of None? Yes, Master, Master of, None. of None. Sorry, Aziz Ansari. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Um, I, I was thinking younger for some reason. I yeah. pictured in my head like little like teens, but no, yeah, Master of None is the same way. Yeah, yeah. and I, you're right. I hadn't even thought about that connection to the lot of films out there about the lapsed Catholic and the family who mm-hmm. has to deal with like their who's afraid of their family's disapproval. It's it's yeah. What's the difference? And it's a and that kind of thing is like exactly the sort of thing you see in a, a romantic comedies. Yes. Oh, their family's very, very, very Jewish, but they're not. Oh, their family's very, very, very Catholic, but they're not. And, spe- and we've seen that tons of times. And speaking so. of the guy playing, I believe this was the actor playing his father, Anupam Kerr. Uh, was uh, uh, Kumail Nanjani's like hero as an his father, his hero. Like he loved him, and so he kept it a surprise till the day his dad was coming on set to go. Oh, here's the guy who's playing you, Dad. Oh, nice. Which I thought was just adorable. Yeah, that's super duper cool. <laughs> uh, all right, and the, if you're going to get this on Blu-ray, which I recommend, because I'm definitely going to be revisiting this multiple times in my life. There's a cast and filmmaker commentary. There is a 15-minute uh, making of the Big Sick EPK with a lot of fun interviews. There's uh, seven minutes of Kumail and Emily talking about the real-life story as opposed to the things they changed for the film. There's the, from the uh, 2017 South by Southwest Film Festival panel uh, with uh, Barry Mandel, Kumail, Emily, and Judd Apatow. Weird that Michael Showalter is only on the commentary and not on any of this other stuff. Uh, Big Sick, the other stuff, which is like outtakes and a gag reel. Uh, 10 minutes of ga- of deleted scenes and then uh, the tour where they're following around just doing goofy stuff taking the movie on tour going with it on speaking uh, arrangements so yeah I think this is well worth it as a package even above and beyond just for the movie so good stuff it felt like it felt like a big what did it end up grossing Does it, uh, do you know uh, yeah 52.3 million yeah, from if, a 5 million dollar budget there was like a little window of time during the summer where it felt like uh, everybody I knew had seen The Big Sick. Even over stuff like Spider-Man Homecoming, which I had friends that didn't go out of their way to see that, I felt like Big Sick, there was... You know, obviously, I know that that grossed more nationwide. Of but, course. But there was a time period with this one where it felt like everybody I knew except me had seen The Big Sick. There was a lot of people who were talking about it. It was one of those films, when you saw it, you didn't really expect it to be anywhere near as great as it was. you know. Mm-hmm. And then it was kind of a gut punch of an experience if you saw it before the... You know, the like you said, like all the expectations lo- yeah. locked in on you. So, yeah, people were anxious to talk about it. And there you go. All right, well, let's move on to our next movie, which is the Criterion release for this week. David Lynch, 
The Art Life. Now, this is uh, a documentary directed by John Nguyen, and it is really more about David Lynch as a young man and being a painter and first starting to experiment with short films. It literally ends at a racer head. It's like, okay, and then we made a racer head, and that's kind of the end of it. But it's a lot of sitting around watching David Lynch talk in a pretty straightforward way and in Lynch's weirdly straightforward way of discussing himself <laughs> you, know, mm. you expect him to be so much more abstract he's actually quite just on the nose very direct yeah, yeah. this is how it was uh, about like his relationship with his family um, complicated and you know, good but complicated relationship with his father and mother uh, his painting which I think is actually really interesting his all the different styles he went through and just his whole experience coming up with through that, I think that <clears throat> it only in the most tertiary way casts a reflection on his film career on the whole, but he tells some stories, there's some little anecdotes that uh, you can see as you can see sort of the seeds that grew into his films, so like, the story he tells as a kid where he sees the nude woman come out of the Woods and like screaming, right. and they're sitting there, and it distresses them so much they start crying. Like, there's some stories like that where you're sort of like, well, "That's very Lynchian," yeah. And I'm like, "It is because it happened to him, and he's telling me about it." <laughs> but it, but they are they. There's little anecdotes where you're like, "Yeah, I can see, I can, I can see the fruit of his art from those things." Well, a lot of it coming from his experience in Philadelphia, where yeah. and sort of almost juxtaposed with his experience of coming to California, where he's talking about Philadelphia and just smokestacks, smoke belching out this darkness, this sense of foreboding. And then California punching him in the stomach with how beautiful it was and all the sun and everything. And like, I think Mulholland Drive is that great film that, that, that really represents that sort of crashing together of those two worlds in a lot of ways, you know, the, the, the darkness behind the sun. Um, and there's little stuff too, like there's show scenes from his first short film and it's got all these sequences of woman, women with black smoke coming out of their mouths. We're like, yeah, yeah, this is totally Lynch for sure. Uh, I will say that <laughs> you don't have to be a fan to enjoy this. And I know this because my girlfriend, uh, being uh, unfamiliar with his film work, uh, just assumed this was a documentary about a painter. Mm -hmm. And she enjoyed it completely on that level. And then I was like, at some point halfway through, I was like, this isn't even getting into his movies. And she said, what movies? I rattled them off. And then she, she knew the movies, but she, she's not, you know, she's not into David Lynch. So right. she, was, you know, she doesn't care yeah, about My that. wife's little brother was here uh, this weekend for ACL, and uh, he, I was watching it. And he's like, oh, what are you watching? I was like, oh, a documentary about David Lynch. He's like, oh, who's he? And I just there's that moment. You're like, okay, I'm a lot older than this guy. But still, yeah. you're like, that's that moment when... Like, uh, who was it, Robin Williams or Billy Crystal or somebody joked about, like, when your kid goes, is it true Paul McCartney was in another band before Wings? <laughs> <laughs> Which nowadays they'd be like, who's Paul McCartney? So. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yes, I agree. Just if you're somebody who's a fan of art, or of, like, artist painters, mm -hmm. I think this is a fascinating journey. And uh, there's a little bit of a video interview with the director who uh, – talks about the difficulties they had during this long production process here, and it ties into the other film that he made called Lynch One, which was about the making of Inland Empire and has stuff from that on there. And then there's a leaflet, an illustrated leaflet with a new essay and some uh, about the film, about David Lynch and some uh, images from the film. There are lots, if for people who are super into David Lynch, there are lots and lots of family photos yeah. and footage of them as well as a family. Um, I love they're the, like old Super 8s and stuff like that. I love like every member of his family, you totally, that Lynch face is right there. Yeah. It's like little tweaks on the yeah. Lynch face. You're like, yeah, you're all definitely related. Also, I watched this, I, I recently got a 4K TV and the transfer on this was notably good. Uh, so, okay. you know, normally we don't get super deep in the woods when it comes to, like, AV talk. Mm -hmm. But this looked nice. This looked really, really nice. Nice. Okay. So. Um, yeah, that's always good to know, especially for a film that's showing a lot of, like, artwork like this. Yeah. It, it's nice to, to, to have, like, I mean, it's a 1080p transfer. Obviously, Criterion, I don't think, has started doing 4Ks. I don't, no, I don't think so either. But just, but just in its transfer that they had on there was, right. like, super 
crystal clear and beautiful. But it's good news for me if they do decide to, because then they'll start reissuing stuff all again, and I can get the stuff I missed on the last time I yeah. went around, which is always good. Which is what's happening right now with a lot of the Blu-rays. I'm like, oh, man, I never got the DVD for that. It's like, oh, yeah, they're reissuing on Blu-ray. Now I can grab it. All right, let's move on to our next title, which is the film Glory. This is a Bulgarian-Greek drama uh, that was selected as the Bulgarian entry for the Best Foreign Language Film in the 90th Academy Awards. By the way, for the record, when usually there's some foreign film you've never fucking heard of and we're viewing the show, it's because it, it got put on the it got a selection for the Oscars and I'm like okay well somebody thought it was worth the shit or won the Palme d'Or or something like that yeah. I'm like alright we should probably at least give this a look um, and I'll be honest of the two films that are on our list this this week that were those type of films this was the one I actually really kind of enjoyed um, although I was a little baffled by descriptions on the cover that say it's Frank Capra, Capra meets the Darden brothers I'm like yeah I don't see that but, but especially not the Frank Capra part no it's the kind of movie that I would have seen at like a South by and then forgotten the name of, or that I had even seen it all together like right. two or three years. Number <laughs> There's a lot of movies like that in my list. And this was sort of like one of those where it's like, I don't, I, you know, I can't, uh, I don't know as it was completely watchable, but it's also one of those that I don't know that I would tell anybody, Oh, you've got to see glory. No, no. Agreed. It's, it's aggravating. Like it's supposed to be, this movie's supposed to be aggravating yeah. to watch. Um, but, yeah, there's nothing about it that makes it stand out so much. You're like, dudes, this one, for there's, sure. Unless this is your type of thing, yeah. watching these little smart uh, foreign dramas that, like, actually, I mean, de- decidedly have something to say. And even then, like, I was like, would I, and I'm watching it thinking, would I ever be compelled to watch this a second time? And I'm like, I'm not so. sure. It's about this guy. He's a rail- railroad worker, and he's not really cut out for television he finds uh, what is he find up like a bunch of money, and they the media kind of tries to make him a hero, and in some of the shuffle of that, he ends up losing a prized watch. Yeah, and then it becomes like this thing about him trying to get this family heirloom watch back from people who could not give a shit about whether or not he gets this watch back. And this is about like the the inherent immorality of politics, just like this, yeah. just even some, like small city politics like this you're like wow this is these people are really uh, just so self-concerned and like i don't see they're like incapable of seeing how irrationally amoral they're being and their actions towards this guy who yeah. they're saying oh look he's a hero and using him in a political opportunist sort of way but when they completely take advantage of him and he's like all, all i want is my watch i mean i don't understand what the problem they're threatening him they're sending like 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 criminals after him yeah. you're like oh my god it's very it's very naturalistic it's very european uh the performances feel very real um but kind of once the story's over i you know i was sort of like ready for the next thing that with my hands and yeah. then i was just like all right like i don't know I, I, it's, yeah, I'm hard pressed to like really tell somebody that they should go out of their way to, to see it. Yeah. I mean, I know people who this is the type of movie they would be, this would be their kind of movie to go, yeah, yeah you guys have to see this. And that's fine. This is what AFS cinema is probably would play this and be super proud of it, you know? Mm-hmm. And great. There's nothing wrong with this movie. I really, I did like it, but it's not one that I'm ever going to feel like I got to see it again. Um, one interesting aspect of it that I haven't quite completely parsed was the, the woman who is kind of in charge of like, who's the other primary character in it, who is the person who's kind of the political maneuverer. Um, there's a whole side story where she and her husband are having troubles because she's so busy all the time doing her thing that she can't pay attention to the thing they're trying to do, which is that she's going to have an embryo implanted in her. And she's just acts like she barely even cares about it most of the time. Well, and that's why I think everybody, so everybody in her life or even her significant other, they don't necessarily, they're not rooting for her to do this because I think that they know her well enough to know that this will all be an afterthought to her. Mm -hmm. So they're not really on board with this. But to her, it's just, I mean, it's a bit of, uh, it's a bit of business. It adds a little bit of ambiguity to the, to the ending without spoiling anything. Um, but yeah, it feels very much like the baby is an accessory as anything else would be. And I think that's why nobody is really like pumped that she's trying to get pregnant uh, and, but, and, or actively talking her out of it a lot of the times. True. The movie as well. Yeah. Uh, she's like a thoroughly unlikable person, but 
with her actions, but when you actually are with her, like you kind of still kind of like her regardless, I think. I feel like, yeah, I'm interested in this lady's story. I'm rooting for her, her because her husband is so nice. And you're like, come on, lady, get it together. It's, All this shit she is right in cover. front of you. She does get the cover, which is very odd. I still not entirely clear on uh, the amount of focus on her and even why it's called Glory. Originally, was, <laughs> this was called The Pledge, apparently, yeah. and then they changed the name. For, well, two movies that have already been made, because there's already a yeah. movie called The Pledge, and there's already a movie called Glory. Yeah. You're gonna have, we're gonna, just going to have to start making up new words for movies, because, you know, my IMDb gets all confused. Yeah, it's, uh, I did not find it Capra-esque. I did not either. <laughs> all right. Let's move on to the other one of those. Oh, maybe we should check this out, because it won a, awarded a major festival. That is The Treasure... Which uh, won the, oh boy, the Pre-Uncertain Talent Prize. Uh, and I don't even know what the qualification is for that one, to be honest, having never been to Cannes or really studied that deeply. But I was like, you know, this sounds like a vaguely interesting storyline here. If you say it just phonetically American, it's like Pricks Uncertain Talent. <laughs> <laughs> Which makes it sound like not an award. It sounds like a Razzie. Yeah. <laughs> Uncertain Talent. Uh, it's this guy who um, basically... Uh, all right, so it, this is a Romanian film. came out in 2015. And the, this dude, his neighbor visits him, says, look, I'm way behind on my house payments. Is there any way I could borrow some money? He's like, dude, I'm barely making house payments now. I would love to help you, but I can't. Guy comes back a little later. He's like, all right, here's the deal. So I think they said it was his grandfather who had buried some, we don't know what it is, treasure in their old property. Yeah. And if they could find it then it would be worth a lot of money and that he'd be glad to split it down the middle with them. But it involves, they got to hire someone to be the person with a professional metal, uh, uh, what do you call it? Metal detector. Metal detector, which isn't like the people on the beach ones, like much more intensive when you're dealing with the, the yeah. ground. And most of the movie is really just them sitting and running this damn metal detector across the yard and then bickering. I was so freaking bored watching this movie. It took everything I had not to just put it into fast forward and skip around, you know? Yeah. Which I did not do. I stayed for the extent. But it's it has kind of an odd, like, wait, what? Ending. Like, after all that, you do that? But I can't say I'm fond of this. Yeah, I don't know. If this, this is the kind of movie... See, that's the thing. is like you have these... There's these, like, art house cinephiles... Whereas this came out in America and starred, like, you know, Chris Pine, I don't think anybody would be, like, all pumped about it, but it's, like, foreign, so it becomes, like, oh, ooh, ah, <laughs> Look at ooh, this really I, I'll tolerate this one-hour-long metal detector gag, because uh, that's essentially, like, the centerpiece of the film, the, the kind of, like... You think that it's going to have some suspense in regards to the treasure, and there are little teases of it that never pan out. Like he's actually like the guy's not actually supposed to be out there on the property, but then that never really pays off. Or um, the I, the the cops or the city municipalities, whatever, they end up like taking the thing that they find at the end, and you think, oh, this is going to have some significance, and even that doesn't really pay off. This so there's these mo teases of, like, oh, crap's fixing to hit the fan, and then that doesn't hit the fan. <laughs> so what you're left yeah. with is, like, this sequence that's probably, I said an hour, it's probably a 20-minute to 30-minute long sequence involving the squeal of a metal detector mm -hmm. that's supposed to be funny, and it... It almost is in a family guy sort of like we're going to repeat the joke sort of way that this that this they hire a guy. So they go in to hire a metal, a professional metal detector and it costs too much money. And the guy that works for the metal detector company comes out, follows him out to the car and is like, hey, if you just pay me directly, I'll come out and do it. And it right. turns out this guy doesn't know anything about it. He barely uh, knows yeah. how the equipment works. Yeah. And so he's out there and the, and with the squealing metal detector for again, probably 20 to 30 minutes of the movie. And that's, that's supposed to be the funny part. Yeah. And as they gradually, the one guy of the two, the guy who was very poor just gets to the point where he's almost ready to physically attack the, yeah. the, the metal detector guy. Cause he's so frustrated. They haven't instantly found this treasure, which is like, what the fuck did you think was going to happen? And to be fair, they're there for like not even 24 hours and you find something you're like, okay, you did pretty good. I would say, 
But yeah, it's a it, it, this whole thing feels like an art director overheard the first act pitch for a pretty cool premise for a horror movie, <laughs> and just like I don't even need to hear the rest. I have a great idea for my film now. Even then, it like the, it has a round robin feeling as well to the ending, where it's like the ending doesn't really tie into anything thematically that we've seen before that we know about the characters. It's just sort of like, all right, here's a really kind of like. It's supposed to be like a super sweet ending. It's kind of corny, mm-hmm. uh, and it, it and the, none of the rest of the movie is corny. So it's sort of like, what is this ending? Like, what does this have to do with any of the stuff I've been watching? I don't feel like we even have enough of a relationship with the character who makes said corny decision to feel like it seems like that's something he would do. No, we don't know anything. Yeah, so um, I, we're thrown into the movie from the beginning because even when his neighbor shows up and asks for money, he just like walks in the door and like, and you're just like, what? Like, wait. That's his neighbor, and he's asking him for that much money. Like, what's yeah. going on? It's like things are different in Romania, I guess. Yeah, I guess you so. know, it's uh, I don't know, but I'll tell you, we talk about movies you're gonna forget you've seen. I'll have forgotten about this one by next week. So, like, wait, did I see that? I don't care. All right, so let's move on to one that's generally considered to be kind of a classic for uh, director. Well, I'm sorry, when yeah. he's a director, he wants to be known as Takeshi Takeshi uh, Kitano. When he's anything else, which to be fair, he's like everything else. He's like yeah. a comedian and a musician and an actor and all sorts of stuff. He likes to be beat Takeshi. If you'll recognize, some people might recognize him from uh, MXC, Most Extreme Challenge, that used to air on right? uh, on Spike TV, which or, was sort of uh, or Battle Royale, of course, yeah. as as the, oh, yeah, the yeah, head yeah. teacher from there. But he's definitely considered kind of a legend, and he's had a weird arc. This movie's called Hannah B, which was which uh, for American audiences they use the title Fireworks, and this was. Kind of the first film that could, don't worry, the cats aren't going to kill each other on top of you, John. <laughs> Monkey will just go, get out of here, Jack. <laughs> this is not uncommon. Okay. Um, like this was kind of the first big film for him to have crossover appeal. And uh, even in Japan, although he was deeply beloved as an actor and a comedian, nobody took him seriously as a director until this film. And now they refer to him as the inheritor to Kurosawa, which is crazy. You're like, wow, seriously? Like, of all the Japanese directors, he's the guy that critics there go, yeah, he's the guy who picked up Kurosawa's mantle. And this is the second time I've seen fireworks. The first time was, God, 10 years ago or something, yeah. well, maybe more. And I, it came out in 1997 originally. And I remember being like, well, that's not what I expected from a Japanese crime film. It's very different than any expectations I could have put on it. But this time watching it, I was quite taken with it. I was curious what you think of it. Uh, I had a lot. I honestly more than even glory or treasure, which I didn't really love, but I got into. This was almost like weirdly the opposite in that I had a really difficult time getting into it. But it's it's more likely that I would revisit this mm-hmm. than I would treasure or glory. I had a really hard time. Like getting into this, it's it's hard to penetrate at first, partially because the story is so nonlinear. Yeah, it's a little hard to figure out what's happening because he's playing at first a cop, and then we're like, no, no, he's been retired for a while, and you're like, wait, what? And then he's working with the yakuza, or taking money from the yakuza, but it it's kind of shuffled around, and you're like, oh, his partners are, are dead, but then they're not dead, and it's not till really the halfway point of the film I had really sorted out what to look for and to know what things are happening in what order. But I, I mean, it's not like a Lynchian level of confusing or anything. No. It's just with the style of this filmmaking, you don't expect it to be as nonlinear as it is. Yeah. Um, but once again, Gatano playing that weird sort of stoic character that he usually does here, almost impenetrable, uh, who's a very violent police detective. I mean, he's not a good guy, but the side of him we see, we do like is his love for his wife. Who's very, very ill. Uh, I don't think they ever actually said what she has, but she's like also, it, it came after their daughter got killed. So their, their, their shit's not good. And one of the, because of the situation that we find out more about as it goes along, one of his, uh, friends was killed, uh, fellow cops. One of them is in a wheelchair. Um, and this is, he's basically gotten to that point where he's like, okay, uh, I, I, I'm not even sure. I guess he, he needed money to help out his friends, families more than anything, but he took a lot of money from the mob and then it's like, I got to figure out a way to pay this back. And honestly, at this point, I really don't care what happens to me. Yeah. It's much more of a drama than I think I expected because even with 
You know, typically with crime films, they either skirt the line of action or they skirt the line of suspense. Mm -hmm. This is really a, more, much more of a drama than an action movie or or a like what you would think of with like a crime suspense film. Oh, it totally is. Uh, yeah, and and that may have been what caught me off guard, but that may also be why I might need to revisit it sometime when I feel like I can. Um, one where I feel like I know what I'm getting into, mm -hmm. um, and give it like 110% of my attention. That may be why, like I said, I liked it so much better the second time because I had very different expectations on it than yeah. I did the first time I watched it where I was expecting something considerably more overtly a Yakuza police action thriller. And while there is really brutal, violent moments in this, it's definitely kind of a very cinematography-driven like character piece drama, um, even with some really unexpected moments. Like there's a whole thing where they're sort of uh, comparing fireworks that at one scene he's launching off at the beach to entertain his wife to the the injured cop who's decided well i'm going to be a painter now and mm -hmm. these drawings he does of flowers on replacing the heads or parts of animals that have a fireworkish type quality to them that you're like this seems strangely out of place but also has a sort of weird zen like thing to it that's necessary in that middle in that lull part of the film before things really do explode into being considerably more brutally violent towards the end yeah i think he's got an interesting face as an actor as well even though he's oh, kind yeah. of stoic he doesn't necessarily like have a lot of he's not showing like a lot of crazy facial expressions or anything like that but there's something about his face where i will when he's in the frame I, my eyes are instantly drawn to his face yeah uh, and I'm not sure why that is. Some people just, I mean, that's why people are film actors. I've always in my head but, compared him like a Japanese Clint Eastwood. Yeah. That's what he feels like to me. But, but that's not accurate, but that's the closest I can come up with for any sort of comparison. You're right. Your eyes are so drawn to him. You yeah. can't not be. Even when he's a small part in any other film, you're always like, when are we going to get more of him? <laughs> you yeah. know? Um, fortunately, he's still working and has done a lot of really interesting stuff in his career, but this is one of those ones that I really do feel is well worth checking out, especially if you are prepared for it. Like I said, this is not Itchy uh, the Killer or something. Well, it's not even you know? like a John Woo movie. No, like, not at all. That's the other thing, too, is like, you know, comparing it to those, it's not even... It's art house. Yeah. Completely. And the new Blu-ray comes with a commentary by David Fear, a making-up featurette that's actually decent length, um, and then a new essay by a film critic about it. Like I said, this is, in Katana's work, this is definitely considered to be essential watching, and I would agree that it is. It's just be prepared for it not to be the sort of movie it may sound like from the outside. All right. Well, let's move on to one. I was honestly shocked when I handed it to John. He's like, oh, I've seen this before and started telling me this story about the dead next door. I So I, I, I have trouble even remembering how I was aware of this, but it was one of those movies that I remember the reputation of being like, oh, it's an unsung like zombie classic completely under the radar that holds its own with any George Romero movie. And... And it was like it. It was an underground big deal. Mm -hmm. It felt. It felt like a movie that 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 had a certain reputation. So, I found some weird mail order company that was distributing it on VHS, and I ordered it. And and during that time, because it was like six to eight weeks before it arrived, and it was going to arrive COD. And uh, at the time, I w I didn't live here in Austin. I lived with my grandmother. And I would drive back and forth, and I Love Video had it for rent. So I rented it and watched it. Didn't like it at all. Yeah. Thought it was cheap. It wasn't scary. It was so low budget. It had goofy stuff in it, like Bruce Campbell doing ADR for like one of the main characters, which I'll get to. Yeah. Um, and I just dismissed it outright, and I told my grandmother, hey, when they drop off this movie, don't, don't take it. They'll <laughs> just like send it back. Um, so I... This was weird because this was like a – I wasn't going to watch it a second time. Uh, yeah, I remember you telling me you were had a very mixed feelings about rewatching Yeah, and, and I wasn't going to rewatch it because I was like, well, out of the stack of stuff that you gave me, I was like, I've already seen this. But I wasn't in the mood to watch subtitles. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to see something spooky because it was October. Yeah. And so I popped it on. You're like, fine, dead next door. Let's and do this. And suddenly <laughs> – I had a completely different experience with it. Hmm. I think you have to, I think there's certain things that you have to know about it. Again, this has been a show all about expectations. It has. I think you have to know that this is a, a some this is a 19-year-old kids 
love letter to George Romero. Yeah. And for a filmmaker that young and that inexperienced and this DIY. And, and also I think after a, I saw this had to have been late nineties. I think after a couple decades of zombies in mainstream culture, there's still stuff about this that's really unique and creative mm-hmm. in ways that like the walking dead TV show and stuff hasn't touched. Even if it has a bigger budget, even if it has better actors, there's actually some things about this transfer too that I enjoyed over the VHS, namely the Bruce Campbell thing, mm-hmm. which is that all previous versions of this have had Bruce Campbell, Campbell dubbed in as the main cop. And for whatever reason on this restoration, they've put the original actor's voice back in, which makes all the difference because it's super distracting mm. to hear Bruce Campbell's dubbed voice come out of that guy. And Sam Raimi was the executive producer on this, which is one of the reasons why Bruce Campbell was involved. I'm not entirely sure why they felt the need to ADR, uh, not just him, but another character, Commander Carpenter as well. Um, this director, J.R. Bookwalter, pretty much has spent his career making little tiny low-budget films like this, this one being Super 8 and the only one apparently worth discussing in his career. But I will say there's this sort of... Like, let's get the, all our friends together, passionate love of what they're doing. Yeah. Thing. There's certainly, the only thing I would say there's a quality to here is some of the gore is actually pretty solid. Uh-huh. I was like, wow, this is impressive special effects for some people with no budget who are clearly just the kind of guys who pour every, over every issue of Fangoria and Starlog and everything else back in the day. And we're like, oh, let's figure out how we could do that. And fuck it. Now let's make our own movie. It's surprisingly entertaining, despite, like you said, the, the zero level quality of the acting here and uh, the film stock being, as mentioned, super aided. There's just you can only make that look so good, no matter what you do to it. Yeah. But um, it also makes some weird decisions in the third act that are kind of entertaining. You're like, okay, I admit I didn't see that coming, partially because it makes almost no sense, but uh, I'm still having fun watching it play out. Mm-hmm. I mean, weirdly. I'd kind of recommend this one to people, but knowing what you're getting into type of thing. You're yeah, like, I, to- I totally would now, and I would not have said that had I not popped it in a second time. And the director is out there, and I guess he's searching on Twitter for people mentioning Dead Next Door. Yeah. And he saw my tweets where I, I tweeted in real time, basically, my slow, uh, my icy heart slowly melting over the course of watching it a second time. Cause I started off just like, I, I talked shit about it. And then I was like, you know, actually this is pretty good. And then I started looking around a, a little, reading a little bit more about it. And I was like, well, he's like 19 when he made this. I yeah. was like, give me a break. Like there's like cool, goofy, funky looking puppets in it and everything else. Like there's, it's, I think it's worth watching if you're a if you're a hardcore zombie fan. I think it's definitely worth watching. Or just in general, uh, hardcore like if you're one of those who always wish you could have made your own horror yeah. film with your friends, this is that movie. Or if you just like, there's a lot of people that are really forgiving of DIY horror, mm-hmm. and this is up there with probably some of the best DIY horror that I've that I've maybe ever seen. It's uh, certainly a lot more entertaining than a lot of the other DIY horror that's out there that yeah, people are where people do fondly. get their friends and have a camera. And, and I've seen a lot of that stuff even recently and go, I'm sorry, this is just not really worth yeah. watching. And this one was actually worth watching, but what a weird like take where it's like you get the soldiers who are the zombie squad who literally have like a logo and everything on their car zombie squad who are basically just dressed up as cops they probably were co- off-duty cops because <laughs> that way they could get the uniforms that's how you who you hire who uh are dealing with scientists who are working towards a cure for this virus and they end up having to fight up against a religious cult who are doing like say satanic like sacrifices uh to I don't know if the devil or God or whatever, believing the zombies were sent as a punishment from God. And they've like made like trained some of the zombies. And then it gets even weirder from there. It's a strange little plot for a zombie film. Yeah. Like I'll, I'll kind of, you know, I mean, it's not good writing certainly, but it's wildly ambitious for a film with almost no budget. So, uh, yeah. And on, this is one of those like, really, they're putting this out on Blu-ray. Well, Yeah. They are, and it comes with a 20-minute restoration of the dead, which uh, gets into interviews with the director about what they had to go through to upgrade this to where you could even do it in high definition. There would be any point in releasing it in high definition with uh, talking as well about Bruce, as you were saying, Bruce Campbell's contributions to the sound design of the film. Apparently, Bruce Campbell was deeply involved with that, which is strange. 
Um, there's a look, a 12 and a half minute look at a screening, uh, from Cleveland, Ohio in 2015 when they first presented this remastered version of it. There's another screening from Akron, Ohio at the Nightlight, uh, which is a Q&A with the director. There's, uh, almost 20 minutes of behind the scenes footage with a non-optional commentary by the director, uh, deleted scenes and outtakes with non-optional commentaries by the director, still galleries, trailer, original trailers, uh, including for some of his other films. Uh, a producer's commentary. Uh, let's see. Um, an interview with actor Scott Spiegel, who, of course, is in this and also was one of the major producers and creators of pretty much everything Sam Raimi ever did. Like, yeah. worked closely with him. Um, a 1999 location tour uh, conducted by actor James L. Edwards. Uh, 20 years and 15 minutes, a retrospective covering the years from 85 to 2005. There's video storyboards, a music video, video pre-shoots, the auditions, um, a 2000 reunion from, uh, with the actors, uh, another producer's commentary, a foreign, uh, version commentary, a audio commentary with, uh, the actor and cinematographer involved. I mean, that's insane amount of stuff for this movie. Can you imagine going to 19-year-old director and going, someday, this little piece of shit is going to have a giant Blu-ray release that still probably most people will never see. But, you know, it's an impressive amount of extra features for such a weird little movie. Yeah, I was trying to figure out. I can't read the distributor's <laughs> name on the spine. Can you uh, read let's that? see here. It's this so tiny. I was I from, couldn't see it. Oh my god, that is tiny. Yeah, I have to look on the actual uh, uh, review site here. Yeah, I couldn't see the uh, uh, Tempe Digital. Okay, I don't even know how I got sent this thing. Yeah, probably, I don't know. I don't know the them as a company, but the you know again, this is a this is a it's the best possible version of the Dead Next Door that anybody could even dream of. Yeah, I suspect this is the final version that will exist of the Dead Next Door. So if you ever really felt like you had to get the best one of this, this is going to be it. I, I'm pretty sure Criterion isn't going to be moving in on this territory anytime I've, Hey, I've seen worse Criterion movies uh, that's with true. less features. That's true. All right, well, let's move into our final film. And honestly, if The Big Sick wasn't in this list, this would have been my favorite. I was profoundly moved by this film. The hero starring the, come on, hard not to love Sam Elliott, who's essentially playing Sam Elliott. You know, thank God. Man, every time he shaves his mustache, I'm always like, please don't do that. Please put, just hold your hand in front of your face until the mustache grows back here. He's got the full on, like the fuller brush man mustache. Um, he plays an aging Western icon who was in the title comes from apparently his big, his golden moment was a movie called the hero. And he now gets work doing voice, like voiceover for commercials and stuff. Cause he's got, you know, he's, he's got Sam Elliott's voice shit. And, uh, he spends his days like sort of being nostalgic <laughs> for old times and smoking out with Nick Offerman, who was like a minor co-star on one of his television shows at one point, but they've kind of stayed like, that's like his one real connection to the world through him. He meets Laura Prepon who plays Charlotte, who is, you know, another came there to buy drugs. And for whatever reason is really into, has got a father fixation, I guess is really into old dudes. And they kind of have this weird meat. Oh no, I think that's a Sam Elliott thing. I think, I think Sam Elliott, at any age, attracts women of all ages. I, I wouldn't be surprised at all to find I out. I think that's things. just a Sam Elliott thing. I mean, just all he has to do is speak, and you're like, that's, just keep talking. Yeah. Your voice is so beautiful. Um, he has found out that he has uh, a pancreatic cancer, which has, I believe, the lowest survival rate of almost any form of cancer. And I know it's very low. And he's kind of dealing with that, not wanting to tell anyone. And he's also dealing with enormous amounts of guilt over having a estranged relationship with his daughter, played here by Kristen Ritter, who's not in this as much as I thought she was going to be. You also, weirdly enough, bookended today's episodes where it's terminal, I guess they're not terminal <laughs> illness movies, they're illness movies that both have a scene in which someone gets intensely uncomfortable and leaves a stand-up comedy show. That's true. I didn't even think about that. <laughs> Both Big Sick and Hero have scenes of going to hear stand-up and having a bad time. I mean, this this is still kind of a horror-themed uh, uh, episode altogether because both the... I mean, this is what's more horrible than knowing that your loved ones or you yourself has got some sort of horrible disease that's going to kill you. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's scarier than zombies. I found this... Despite being ambient, deliberately paced, I found this, like, I couldn't tear my eyes off it. I was so drawn to these characters and what was happening in the story, and specifically to Sam Elliott. Your heart just goes out to this guy completely. 
uh, Lee Hayden is his character's name, but they really should have just called, made him Sam Elliott. <laughs> I was like, wait, come on. He's Sam That's the thing is, like, he does barbecue sauce commercials. He does, yeah. like, this barbecue sauce commercials and stuff. And the thing is, like, was this a script that they then wrote around him, or did they write this and go, were, or did they know him and write it for him, or did they write this and then hope for him? Like, I'm one. I'm kind of curious about the origin of this movie. I did not listen to the commentary, but I, yeah, I was I was sort of taken with like, well, I wonder how, you know, or is it a script that somebody just went, oh, dude, I found this. It's perfect for you. What's it about? It's about an aging cowboy actor who does voiceover work. <laughs> He's like, hey, I get roles sometimes. I was on TV. I think he was in Justified. I can't remember what it was. He had like a the, one of the big villains role on a major show not that long ago. But um, you're right. This does feel like something that they were like thinking of Sam Elliott. Yeah, the whole I think time. I have to imagine that he knew the people involved and that they wrote it around him. Uh, and this is directed by Brett Haley, uh, who did "I'll See You in My Dreams" in the New Year, both of which I'm not sure I saw, so I can't really speak to that. Um, I'm looking to see if maybe either one involved Sam Elliott, and I'm not. So yeah, he did write it specifically for Sam Elliott. Oh, there you go. He starred alongside Blythe Danner in "I'll See You in My Dreams," so he called it. This is his love letter. Okay, so it's one Sam of those. Where he'd worked with him and then went, you know what? I'm going to write a Sam Elliott movie and then did. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and which is great. I mean, come on, talk about a dream for an actor. This is really a dream role for any actor. And Elliott knows how good and juicy a part this is and gives it his all. There's a scene where he's he's given a sort of he becomes kind of social media uh, um, uh, present by accident. And there's a this revival of interest in him, and he's asked to go out and audition for a role. They're like, you all but have it, you know, for this big, like, YA adaptation. And he just totally breaks down in the middle of it. And it's so heartbreaking, and it's such a strong performance from him. I just, like, I was a mess just watching it, you know, because this guy who's the epitome of inner strength, you know, he is the the real man, the cowboy, you know. Seeing him that vulnerable is almost impossible to, like, not... Get all verklempt yourself. Yeah. Um, I, I really, really loved this. I'm actually, yes, I still haven't heard really, I feel like I haven't heard what your overall feelings were for this. Oh, I really liked it. It was, it was a nice character study um, with, uh, with enjoyable to watch. Some of my favorite character actors, Offerman and, and Laura Prepon and Kristen Ritter, you know, filling out the, rounding out the cast. Appearances, even like, Cameos by people I enjoy as well because in the comedy club you see Ali Wong mm-hmm. uh, as one of the comedians who I re- if you've seen her comedy special I really like her too she's great um, so it was yeah it's it's rounded out with a with a cast of people I enjoy it's a very small movie um, it's very much about you know somebody almost trying to maybe force a quote unquote life goes on sort of ethos to his life. Even when it really doesn't, mm-hmm. like like the very fact that he has the news that he has this cancer means life is not going to go on. And I think the film is sort of his his struggle with trying to apply that to a situation where that's simply not a truth anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I thought it was really good. Yeah, I, I, this is honestly probably it may even make it into my top ten for the year so far. Wow. I liked it that much, but I also have like you know my father died not that long ago. And I'm still, there's resonant feelings there connected with that to have this definitely very father figure type of guy here that represents this sort of like unique strength going yeah. through the process of dying from the same thing that my dad died from. Mm. So you're like, okay, obviously this one was going to reach out and pull my heart through my rib cage regardless. Yeah. But I think there's just such strong performances across the board by everybody here. My only complaint is I really would have liked to have seen more Kristen Ritter. She seems like that relationship with her father, which is, I always use it, I overuse this expression. In this case, I'm using it metaphorically, but the, her relationship with her father is the third man of the story. You know, it's like subtly referenced throughout it, and you know it's an important issue, but it's not really till we get to the, towards the very end that it, anything is put right on the table about it. And I wanted to know more. I'm never even clear, felt clear about what the details were. Yeah. Of what caused this major strife between them in the first place. But he, he's the first to admit, I was not a great dad. <laughs> um, there's not a lot of extra features here. An audio commentary with the writer-director and then with Sam Elliott. But, you know, hey, you get another hour and a half of Sam Elliott.
talking, so that's not bad. And then a photo gallery. But regardless, solid film. I agree with our previous. We actually reviewed this on Highly Suspect Reviews. I was not able to go see the screening, but everyone else gave it a 9 out of 10, I believe. So, yeah, put this on your list. We're not the only two people who say, yeah, this is totally worth your time. And now with a very special guest on a guest commentary here for the Blu-ray release of Haunters, The Art of the Scare is Patience. Who you may know from our Deliberations of Doom podcast. Well, we both saw this at Fantastic Fest. Uh, when this goes up, I believe the actual our video review for the movie, the theat- theatrical release there should already be up. But the Blu-ray is already out for this thing. And the reason we thought it was valid to discuss this again for the Blu-ray release is they actually put a shit ton of extra features on um, this. Not thing. to mention that this, I mean, if you read our or heard our original review, we absolutely loved this documentary so much. Um, this, uh, the whole behind the scenes of haunted attractions was one of my favorite things that I saw at Fantastic Fest. But now that we have the Blu-ray release and all of these, you know, uh, extras, behind the scenes extras, now I even loved, I mean, it just reminded me of how much I loved the film to begin with. We get all of these inside views into the whole motivation of why, um, these people, uh, these designers, these creative directors of these haunted attractions ended up, um, getting into the business in the first place and, and, and why, why they became, you know, these, uh, heads of these amazing things. Yeah. That I mean, like, that's the thing is like, this, whereas the movie... <laughs> Like, definitely pays the most attention to, like, three different people now and we, has yeah. little teases of stuff with some other people on the side, like the Saska sisters. They talk Saska to them a little bit. A little bit. They we talk get... to the guy who runs the Universal uh, Horror Nights stuff, which is, they acknowledge in the movie, is the considered to be the best high-quality scare house The Hayride, the, the LA Hayride. We get uh, inside view into Delusion. We get an inside view into Blackout. Yeah. Um, um, delusion being a theatrical haunted house performance where you're literally in the middle of this sort of horror play that's going on. And that's really cool. You want to know more about it in the movie. You're like, wait, go back to that. Yeah. Uh, but there's a lot of like little things. It all adds up to 30 minutes of extra stuff, which is a pretty, pretty awesome reason to buy this. And honestly... This is a movie I want to revisit again soon anyway. Agreed, 100%. Actually, when I was in the theater watching Haunters, I was like, I want to hear more about, you know, Blackout. I want to hear more about Delusion. And so we get that in these extras. We get the that, you know, like these great... Great. 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 Ape. Great. Googly moogly. Great patience has fallen over. She's done. <laughs> the point being, this is they they definitely make it where you get your money's worth for this thing, and I think it's kind of an essential these, documentary. Yeah, these great creators who yeah. the, the they have these the creative minds behind all of these amazing haunted attractions that you're just like, holy shit! You're either a demented motherfucker. Or you're super cool, and everyone except for that one guy that we all dislike in the in the documentary is super cool. Yeah, yeah, the one guy you're like, okay, you're like basically a psychopath. Yeah, yeah, you're kind of yeah, yeah. You're the only reason you haven't actually killed people is because you found this thing to do uh, instead. Th- let's hope so. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe he's actually killing they, they people. Wait for Haunters Part know, Two, right? Exactly. John's gonna do Haunters Part Two. Russ, the serial killer. <laughs> wait, 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 Russell Summers? No. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Anyway, yes, so buy this movie. That's what we're saying. Yes. Buy it. Because buy well, it. for one thing, you're supporting a really good dude. John is the best. John is literally the nicest guy I've ever met, My other than Chris Cox. Okay, I was about to, you know, I was giving her the side eye there. It's like, what? Oh, <laughs> uh, wait, he I thought told me I, I was the, the nicest, nicest guy. guy. Um, so, yeah, just without the Sasuke sisters, it's a great... I, yeah, yeah, you yeah, should buy it. Indeed. And that spells the end of this week's Digital Noise. Kind of sad you narrowly missed the window. You missed it by like a day or two of me handing you popcorn, which I feel like is a movie oh, I love popcorn. to watch. So, yeah. You know, and I'm, I, I'm a little pissed about the Blu-ray release of popcorn. I thought that they were only releasing it limited. Mm-hmm. So I pre-ordered that special Steelcase edition that then two months later they were like, 
People loved it so much, we're now releasing the regular uh, version, and I was like, I would not have paid $40 for that movie. I would have paid 17 or however much it ended up being. Right. You <laughs> gladly would have gotten the discount. But I thought it was going to be like a Fright Night situation where it was like, if you miss the opportunity to buy, buy this on Blu-ray, then you're shit out of luck. Because yeah. you're not going to be able to get your hands on it again. Well, I'll be talking about that on an upcoming show with another one of our digital noise people. Sorry, John. It's okay. <laughs> but uh, a, a solid horror comedy that's worth your time, I think we can both agree on. I like it. But uh, yeah, and uh, before, well before Halloween, we'll have more digital noise with many more horror movie reviews. Quite a few coming up. So stay tuned for that. And if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear them. Thanks a lot. Let's hear it for our subscribers. Why? Because you wouldn't be listening to anything at all here at oneofus.net without them. Sure, they get benefits like our commentary tracks from movies, our weekly movie and TV news and trailer review show, The Breakfast Pub, our podcast, The Original Gentleman, with Martin Thomas, Bo Paul, and myself, Christopher Cox, and lots more, including some nostalgia and never-before-heard-or-seen stuff from our old site, Spill.com. Oh yes, and the recent video logs and Get to Know You're One of Us crew. Lots of fun to be had there. I could try to sell you on becoming a subscriber just based on all of that. But you know what the main reason is? Because all of this is only here because of them. Or because of you, if you know who you are. Please, become one of the us. Support oneofus.net and help out a fellow geek like yourself.